Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hi, everyone. It's Robin Openshaw, and welcome back to Your High Vibration Life. And today I have a very special episode with you about something very controversial. I was on a beach in Mexico with my girlfriends for my birthday recently. We were celebrating my 50th birthday, and it was my girlfriend's birthday as well. And we're sitting on the beach, and my girlfriend is reading a magazine called, I think, Spirituality. And I looked over her shoulder and she was reading a book called Why, When, and How to Eat Wheat. And the thesis of this was this whole gluten-free craze is way off and we don't have a problem with wheat. We don't have a problem with gluten. We have some completely different issues. And so to dive into that today, I think is very important because you're going to learn some things about wheat that you didn't know, and you may just be able to eat it again. I want to introduce to you Dr. John Duyard. He is a globally recognized leader in the fields of natural health, Ayurveda, and sports medicine. He directs Life Spa, the 2013 Holistic Wellness Center of the Year in Boulder, Colorado. And he's the creator of Life Spa, the leading Ayurvedic health and wellness resource on the web with 5 million views on YouTube. He's the former director of player development and nutrition expert for the New Jersey Nets NBA team. He's a best-selling author of seven health books, including his latest, Eat Wheat, a scientific and clinically proven approach to safely bringing wheat and dairy back into your diet. So welcome, Dr. John Duyard. Thank you, Robin. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. So I um, was so was so excited to connect with you because one by one, all these anti-gluten books keep coming out. Last weekend here in Utah, where I live, there was a gluten-free expo. And you've shared with me that $16 billion a year are being spent by Americans on gluten-free products. And I think that you and I share the opinion that gluten-free is a fad And there's something else beneath it that I'm excited to explore with you. And just to give a quick little backstory, my readers or longtime followers know that I healed myself of severe thyroid disease, obesity, 21 different diseases. I was having many strokes. I had a tumor. I was losing my eyesight and making the shift to eating whole foods, mostly plant-based, most weeks, most months, entirely plant-based is how I recovered my health. Now, I don't really care if people eat meat or not. I do care if they eat whole foods because it's really just the path to health. And you know, grains and legumes were an enormous part of my healing journey. And I really feel like there are tens of millions of people all over the planet. And you're a student of Ayurveda, so you'll relate to this, you know, especially in India and all over Africa. These are people who don't have means and people who don't have a lot of money and live close to the land and people who don't have access to the Western diet and packaged foods eat pretty much nothing besides greens, vegetables, and grains. So, Tell us a little bit of how you got so interested in educating America that grains are actually good for you. Tell me more. You know, I started uh, in practice in 1984. And uh, even back then, people would come into my practice and say they have digestive problems. Chronic fatigue was big back then. Candida was big back then. Probiotics were big back then. And, and what I realized, you know, people come in and they can't digest things and say, well, get off of wheat and dairy. That was a, something that we knew 35 years ago. And then people would get better and then they'd come back three or four months later and say, God, my problems are back. And say, well, try getting off of soy and, and other things, nuts and seed, nuts maybe. And, and they'd get better and then, and then the problems would come back. And, and it didn't take long being in practice uh, and my goal in practice was to get people better and not create a dependency on another pillar or powder. So it made very clear that wheat and the foods were not really the problem, but it was something else, a, a broken down digestive system that was allowing foods that might be a little more challenging to digest, which in a minute we're gonna see are turned out to be really important for us. But when you can't digest foods, 
And we then are fed a diet for the last six years of processed foods that are sort of pre-digested for us. We lose our digestive strength. Our, our digestive system sort of literally goes on welfare. It stops bothering to digest because we're not asking it to digest. And I get it. People who eat wheat, you know, they don't feel wonderful and they have issues. Uh, there is a $16 billion marketing plan here that's telling us that really that if you eat wheat, you're going to gain weight. And and the reality is is that that uh, the science is amazing. The science is I mean, that's why I really wrote the book Eat Wheat is because the science was so different than what was being to- talked about in the best-selling media. The science shows that wheat whole wheat, not refined or processed wheat, lowers the risk of Alzheimer's by 53% in the Mediterranean diet, 54% in the mind diet, which is three servings of whole wheat or whole grains per day, lowers the risk of, of type 2 diabetes in study after study after study. And this week, a huge study was just released measuring that people that eat, that it was a 30-year study of over almost 200,000 people and they found that the people who ate the most gluten, the most gluten had the lowest rates of type 2 diabetes, and people who ate the least amount of gluten had the highest rates of type 2 diabetes. And this is a really interesting phenomenon that no one's really talking about. Is it okay that we just take a food group that we've been eating for three and a half to four million years, and there's science to back that up, right out of our diet, that is what we've been feeding on for the last 60 years, slowly taking these undigestible fats in higher and higher quantities, breaking down our digestive system to the tune of now those fats congest your liver and your gallbladder. And the number one elective abdominal surgery in America today is gallbladder surgery. Mm. So all of a sudden, everybody's getting their gallbladder taken out in record numbers because the gallbladder is so thick and congested, as is the liver, with this with this undigestible omega-6 processed fats that we can't digest much of anything. And, and you can't break down your fats with like your gallbladder. That's what affects your, your obesity levels, it affects your mood, and it affects your, your blood sugar stability because the reality is that type 2 diabetes is a liver condition primarily not a pancreatic condition. So there are a lot of reasons why I wrote this book. One is to stop the craziness. And I think the most important thing is that people don't understand that just taking wheat out of their diet, it might make you feel better short term, but it isn't solving the real problem. And your ability to, to digest well and digest hard to digest foods is directly linked to your ability to detoxify. And we have 4 billion pounds of toxic chemicals dumped in the American environment every single year. We have mercury lacing every organic vegetable. So whether you eat organic or not, and you should of course eat organic, but there's you can't avoid the chemicals is my point. And the mercury is fat soluble. So if you can't digest well, you can't detoxify well. You're taking wheat out of your diet or the next thing out of your diet or becoming a vegan or a vegetarian or a raw foodist because you don't digest well and you're looking for some dietary solution to solve your problem in the next best selling yo-yo type diet. And you feel better for a little while, but then you fall off the diet because it stopped working. This is what's been happening for 30, 40, 50 years. It's time for us to treat the real problem. And the real problem is a, and there's a lot of reasons and ways to navigate this. And I want to, I'd love to talk about this in detail, but how to reboot your digestive strength, how to navigate around the process foods, like, like Robin says, eat whole foods. But boy, you gotta be aware of what what is whole food and what isn't whole food, because it's very tricky. Um, and then reboot your digestive strength with whole foods and herbs. And that's the whole point of my book, Eat Wheat, and to kind of stop the craziness and make sure that people aren't, you know, setting themselves up for real serious problems down the road by thinking wheat was the, 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 the new, you know, public enemy number one. Okay, so getting off of wheat makes people feel better sometimes, and they think it's because wheat is bad for them, when really they just stopped eating inappropriate versions of wheat or, you know, processed wheat where we threw away the bran and the germ and we dumped a bunch of chemical vitamins in it maybe, um, and maybe we ate it three times a day. All of this I got from you. Um, And I have some interesting questions I want to ask you from my reading your work. But what you're saying, I think, just to get clear on this, is that getting off of wheat products and feeling better doesn't mean wheat is bad for you because you're just 
stopping the flare up of inflammation temporarily, but you didn't solve the underlying gut issue, which is related to a lot of dietary problems Americans are causing themselves with our diet. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, there was one study, they took camu wheat. Camu is one of the one of the ancient grains that they're still growing today. And they and they um, found that camu has twice the amount of gluten as some of the modern strains. Twice the amount of gluten. But that grain with twice the amount of gluten had twice the reduction of inflammation. It actually reduced the risk of uh, diabetes. And um, and therefore, and it had twice the and reduced the inflammation, and had twice and also reduced reduced cholesterol. That's what I was forgetting. Yet it had twice as much gluten. There are studies that show that, that when people eat a gluten-free diet, and they versus people who don't eat a gluten-free diet, we're talking about in general healthy people, they have four times as much mercury in their blood when they eat gluten-free than when they eat wheat. They have significantly less good bacteria, more bad bacteria than people eat wheat. That's another study. And one more study, they found that when people eat a gluten-free diet, they have significantly less killer T cells, a measure of immunity, than people eat wheat. And they found gluten, evidence of gluten in the teeth of ancient humans three and a half to four million years ago, and they had a significant amount of grain. In fact, the study at the University of Utah, when they found these studies, they said that the ancient humans three and a half million years ago could gather enough wheat berries in two hours to feed them for an entire day. Um, and we didn't start hunting and cooking our own meat until 500,000 years ago, most most agree it's a little, give or take a, a couple hundred thousand years, but that's what they believe. But we have evidence of three and a half to four million years of eating wheat. We have almost two million years more evidence, more genetics for eating wheat than we do meat. And it's so funny, we were talking about this earlier, how everybody who can't digest grains anymore because their digestion has been broken down from the processed foods is going to a paleo diet, which is meat, three times a day. And there's no paleolithic person on the planet living in the paleolithic era that ever ate meat three times a day. It simply didn't happen. And they absolutely did eat grain because they could pick them off the wheat dirt. And when they when they originally started to hybridize the wheat around 12,000 years ago, they wanted the wheat to be bigger. They wanted the berry to be bigger because it was easier to get and find. Because otherwise they're needle side, you can lose them in the dirt. So I want a bigger grain. So what they did, they, they started selecting for bigger grain. And when they selected for bigger grain, guess what they were selecting for? Less gluten and more sugar. Hmm. They original hybridization of wheat had nothing to do with increasing gluten content. It had everything to do with increasing sugar content. The problem has been sugar from the very beginning, and it still is sugar today. It's not a wheat belly issue, it's a sugar belly issue. And then the other argument, let me get this off my chest really quickly, that says that ancient grains are, are way better than modern grains, and modern grains are hybridized and, and genetically modified, and all these things. It's not true. There's no genetically modified wheat. They did some tests, but they're not, uh, they're not being, they're not in our food chain at, at all. The, the, they did studies at the University of Saskatchewan, for example, they did a 19-year study measuring ancient grains of, strains of wheat from the 1800s to modern strains, and they found absolutely no genetic difference. And I have read the articles and the studies that are written in Wheat Belly, and there are a lot of, a lot of interesting, flawed, skewed ways that that science was interpreted. There is really very, very little evidence that a whole wheat does anything except lower your risk of type 2 diabetes in study after study. I would challenge anybody to find me one study that shows that whole wheat increases the risk of diabetes. And that is the case that the wheat belly is making and David Perlotter's book, The Grain Grain, is making. That, that wheat has a high glycemic index and therefore acts like sugar and therefore increases the risk of Alzheimer's and increases the risk of obesity. However, the studies show that whole wheat has a low glycemic index. Refined wheat may have a high glycemic index, but so does every single refined food we eat on the planet, just like you say, Robin. We gotta get the, all of it out of our diet, not just the refined wheat. And when you eat whole grains, it lowers the risk of obesity, arthritis, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, and type two diabetes in study after study. There's over 600 references in my book because I was blown away by the amount of science that says that wheat is actually okay. Now, we gotta get to the point, go, okay, how do I get, get non-processed wheat? Well, look at the ingredients for sure. And wheat, to make bread, for example, it takes whole wheat, water, and salt. That's all you need. And that's all that's in the ingredients is those three things. An organic starter helps. And if you take a fermented bread, 
that can take up to three days to bake, three days from start to finish. With a loaf of bread, the whole wheat organic loaf of bread on this counter in this grocery store that they say squishy for days and weeks and maybe in months, takes two hours to make from beginning to end. And I can't tell you how many patients have come to me who can't eat wheat, meat, or wheat, even meat, or, 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 or dairy, or anything with a heart death protein, uh, gluten, nuts, seeds, legumes, all grains. And when you take all of that out of our diet, where is the immune stimulation that has been boosting our immunity for millions of years? We have microbes in our mouth, esophagus, stomach, small, large intestine, specifically engineered, specifically engineered to make enzymes to digest wheat, specifically for wheat. Not to other, and other grains have other enzymes and other microbes. So when we just take it out of our diet, and, those, and that wheat has been now shown to boost immunity and we just take it out as if nothing's gonna happen, we're going down the exact same road we did 60 years ago when they took cholesterol out of our diet and they gave us the omega-6 bleach deodorized processed preservatives and replacement. And today they're giving us processed gluten-free foods, which are more of the thing that got us in the mess in the first place, which is more processed foods. We really have to stop the craziness and you know start demanding whole foods. Yeah. I agree. And don't don't forget to mention when we got our tropical oils blacklisted, these, you know, cold pressed, organic, beautiful, medium chain fatty acids that we ran butter and coconut oil and palm oil out of town. And instead we have this refined, deodorized horror that is vegetable oil. So so many things like that that are related to what the food industry has fed us, along with a story that is ends up being just marketing. Okay, so you've covered a lot of amazing points that we just touched on. So I want to review a few of them. And then I want to get into what the real problems are with grains. Because once we understand that, then we can eat grains again. And who doesn't like eating grains? Um, they're an important part of, of life. Let's start with number one thing I want to just re- review is that uh, Dr. Duyard has said 3.4 million years ago, Um, He's referring to a University of Utah study. That's my alma mater in grad school. 3.4 million years ago, ancient man was eating grain and his teeth prove it. It's only half a million years ago that people started eating meat. And so what does this do? Really fast, uh, tell me this. What does this do to the whole idea of the paleo diet? Well, you know, if you ask any anthropologist what the Paleolithic people ate, they will tell you in short order, they ate nothing that is recommended in the paleo diet. I mean, they ate meat, but they ate meat like they would kill the rabbit. Uh, and you had a scavenge a little here, a little there. They ate meat once, you know, it was it, it, woolly mammoth, and they had a feast of that and then famine for a period of time. They ate grains, they ate tubers, they ate nuts and seeds. They, so it was a combination of many, many things, but it wasn't meat, three meals a day, guaranteed. Uh, it was much, much, much less meat, and it was many, many more starches. In fact, the enzyme, N-amylase, which is only for digesting starch, by the way, we evolved as humans around two million years ago to genetically make our own amylase. Prior to that point, we didn't have the enzyme amylase. And what's really interesting is today, even today, after all these years, our amylase enzyme is cyclical, it's circadian, which means that it increases in our bodies in the fall and the winter, and it decreases in the spring and the summer. And just take a wild guess when grains were harvested for the last, up until very recently, uh, for the last million, couple of million years. Right, in the fall. Yeah, in the fall. So we have, we have enzymes specifically for wheat. And a deficiency in this enzyme, some people will have that, actually is linked directly to what's called Baker's asthma. People who don't have M amylase can't digest wheat and they have allergies to wheat. And it's a real thing. But, but most everybody else has plenty of amylase. We think we've genetically been able to make it for millions and millions of years and is specifically amping up in our bodies in the fall to, to digest these very important foods. And why do we need grains in the winter from a circadian perspective, Robin? It's so important is that at the end of the summer when all the carbohydrates and the fruits and the sugars and the grains and the nuts and the seeds are all being harvested, those are gonna provide us with a whole extra dose of carbohydrate. We actually sort of go a little diabetic and the extra sugar we can't use gets stored as fat. And that's the insulation for us to move into winter. 
and it's a natural phenomenon. Then you go into the spring, which is a low fat season. There's no grain. We are in now, as we speak in, in, uh, in April, it is a low grain, low dairy, low you know, nut seed season. It's leafy greens and sprouts and root vegetables and burdock roots and things like that. So it's a very austere time of year and that resets fat burning as a natural source of fuel and gets us off the carbs that we binged on at the end of the summer and had enzymes to digest them at the end of the summer. So it's really interesting how, how you know, we've you know, vilified grain when without them, we would never have been able to make it through a long winter uh, without storing some of the grains that we could nibble on throughout the winter. And then basically, you know, it was hit or miss whether we we're going to make it through the early spring and, and get to the summer harvest before we run out of food and die of starvation. Fascinating. Another controversy you've touched on is you, I'm pretty sure you said that anti-nutrients aren't a bad thing. We have so many practitioners, even the holistic or functional practitioners who, you know, probably just through their own ignorance of this subject have scared all their patients off of eating any foods with anti-nutrients. So I just want you to drive that home. You mentioned that anti-nutrients have an important function. I read a big, long book about this years ago. I was looking through my bookshelf and had, didn't find it before our interview. But basically, the, the jury is still out. And lots of science shows that these anti-nutrients like phytates and oxalates, are they friend or are they foe? Oh, they're definitely friend. If, if anybody would just open up PubMed and type in phytic acid research, you'd find so many studies suggesting that phytic acids actually are quite good for you. Now, on the surface, yes, they do block iron and calcium and some minerals. But when you actually look at groups of people who actually eat a high phytic acid, high grain diet, they have no iron deficiency. That's once they had 41% more iron than people who actually were on a low phytic acid diet. So that doesn't sort of make sense, right? But the body, in over millions of years, has figured this out. People say, well, it robs calcium, you get osteoporosis. Well, that's not actually, doesn't really pan out because people who are on a high phytic acid diet, we eat a lot of grain in their diet, have the, high, the lowest rates of osteoporosis on the planet. So that doesn't really pan out. So the cases that they make against phytic acid are just sort of amazing to me uh, because there's really not backed by any real solid science and the fact that phytic acids have been shown to lower the risk of colon cancer in numerous studies. So these phytic acids, these anti-nutrients, are the immune triggers that we're talking about. And when you globally sterilize the diet like we did with our microbiome, that was a bad idea. Now we're sterilizing our diet because people can't digest much of anything, and the science is beginning to show that is a really bad idea. And we better stop doing it because, you know, the last time we did that, we were looking at diabetes, depression, obesity, and a broken down digestive system, gallbladder congestion issues, taking out your gallbladder. Now we're going to take more, eat more processed foods and take grains and nuts and seeds and legumes out of our diet, which is really what's going to happen because people can't digest. They're, they're going to get weaker and weaker at digesting when they eat gluten-free, highly processed foods. And then we're looking at a real compromised immune system down the road. And that is not the road I would like to hoe going into the next 50 years on this planet. Because you know, we need as strong of an immune system as we possibly can have. Because you know, these bacteria are becoming resistant to the antibiotics. And we're going to have to figure out a new way to protect ourselves from the bacteria that are constantly attacking, even in the dirt and the soil, the bad bugs are constantly attacking the good bug. It is a battle. It, I wish I could say it's so peaceful down there, but there's a microbial battle that takes place every single day inside of us and in the soil. And we better make sure that we are, we are amped up with, with uh, evolutionary skills and fuel to fight, to continue to fight that battle. And uh, by taking things out of our diet globally and replacing it with pre-digested foods, like processed foods, it's really is, it's dumb. It's really just, there's no other word for it than just dumb. But the people are dumb. They don't feel good when they eat it. But they're just being told the solution is wheat, and it's simply not. It's something else. And don't eat wheat yet until we fix the problem. And then you can go back and eat real wheat, not processed wheat. And I want to get into what the best ways are to eat wheat, because one of the things that I've learned from you is that eating processed wheat three times a day, like people are doing if they're eating toast and donuts and bagels and cookies and cakes and and the, the forms of wheat that Americans are eating um, year round, like you said, we we tend to produce amylase for fall and winter. And I want I'll get into Ayurveda 
a little bit because I know you are an internationally known Ayurveda scholar and practitioner, but I want to cover one more thing in terms of the controversies that you've touched on that I want to drive home. And that is this, I actually learned this from you. I did not know this, but you talked about how Kamut, which is trending in health food stores and earthy, crunchy people, health nuts like me buy Kamut because it hasn't been hybridized because it's an ancient grain. But we actually were being taught 20 years ago when it kind of first started, you know, people started marketing it in the health food world that the issue with it is that unlike durum wheat that's been hybridized over and over and over again, Kamut actually has lower gluten. But what I learned from you is that Kamut actually has twice as much gluten and it causes very, very little inflammation. Fascinating yeah. because because yeah. this calls into question the whole entire gluten debate. Yeah, I mean the grain with the most gluten has the least inflammation. Doesn't make any sense. In fact, I, I actually interviewed the 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 only grower of camel wheat on one of my podcasts. He was amazing, and um, and some of the studies that he did, he's actually a researcher as well. And there's so much science out there, but the camel grain actually lowered the risk of type two diabetes, which all wheat whole wheat does, but it also lowered lowered the the uh, the pain uh, reactivity from IBS. It actually helped to seal up the intestinal skin from leaky gut syndrome. So here's the grain that everybody blames leaky gut syndrome on is actually healing leaky gut syndrome. Healing IBS doesn't really make any sense, but studies show that wheat is a natural probiotic and a natural prebiotic. So it actually facilitates the growth of numerous microbes in your gut. And we have enzymes, like I said, from the mouth all the way down to the bottom of our digestive system, we have enzymes. So, so it's almost like if wheat's going through, everybody takes their shot at taking their piece of it because everybody wants it. And whatever is left over in the gut goes into creating the fiber, the wheat fiber goes into making uh, food for the microbiome to feed it in massive quantities. There's glutenates in your large intestine specifically engineered for breaking down gluten. Hey, you're not eating, you're having digestive issues, stop eating that and stop eating, you know, if it, if it doesn't, if, you know, if it hurts, you know, stop doing what makes it hurt, right? And then everything's solved. And it's just amazing that we're, that's what we're being told. And it's not enough, really not enough, because the real problem is about to come. Well, not only is it not enough to keep taking the symptoms away, but then those little taps on the shoulder that nature or God or who, whoever is doing that is is trying to get us to pay attention to, then we don't pay attention to it and the underlying problem gets worse. And so these are some great ideas towards revisiting the way we think about food in general. Um, we've talked about what maybe the problem isn't with grain, okay, because there's entire books written on how it's it's the gluten in wheat, it's the gluten in grains. And then we throw out the entire class of grains. And you know, a lot of grains that I eat aren't even really grains. You know, they're seed fruits, they're they don't even have any gluten in them. You know, they might be grown in Africa. Now there's such a global economy. But tell me what are the real problems with grains towards telling us then what is the appropriate way to eat them? Well, I think that the, the reality is that, like I said, that they have anti-nutrients which protect the grain from fall through the winter into the spring when they harvest. And those anti-nutrients are a little bit challenging to digest. And when And so as a result of that, we have, uh, we really do need a very strong digestive fire, that hydrochloric acid in our stomach. But that's only going to happen if you have a lot of really good bile flow in your liver. So the, usually the kingpin and thing that I start with is how to reboot and repair your liver and your gallbladder function. Um, and then, because if these foods go undigested in the stomach, into the small intestine, they're too big to get into the bloodstream the way they should, so they get uptaken into the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system is trying to deliver fats as energy to every cell in your body. And if that, if the big undigested proteins and mercury and toxins and chemicals are all clogging up in gluten undigested and dairy undigested, casein, they'll clog up the lymphatic vessels and all of a sudden, the ability to deliver fast as energy is compromised and you all of a sudden have either a food coma or chronic fatigue syndrome. The lymphatic system is also trying to deliver energy and every, every energy, but also your immune system is carrying your immune system. And if that immune system is stuck in traffic, you have immune responses. You have hyperimmune responses. 
you have lymph underneath your skin, and that becomes an exit ramp for the impurities that can't get out through the appropriate channels because your lymph's trying to detoxify you, and you get rashes and hives. And then the, 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 the real culprit, sort of the brain-brain culprit, is that there are, there are brain lymphs, uh, there are lymphatic vessels in your brain that drain three pounds of toxic chemicals and plaque out of your brain every single year. And uh, if the lymphatics around the belly where most of it starts is congested, eventually the brain lymphs will be congested and they drain while you sleep at night. You don't sleep, you don't drain, you don't, you don't drain, you don't sleep. And then people start having brain fog, cognitive decline. In fact, the studies show when people's brain lymphs get congested, it's very common, it's linked to inflammation, infection, anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, and autoimmune conditions. Those are all the things that people say wheat causes. And wheat did not cause the lymphatic congestion of the brain or the lymphatic congestion around your belly to make your belly swell. It didn't cause the rashes on your on your skin. It was it was poor digestion that let a lot of undigested proteins go through and then act as immune irritants or stimulants because they shouldn't be there in an undigested form. So it's not rocket science here. Let's just reboot the digestion system and stop letting that wheat go through undigested, eat it in a seasonal way, eat it in a whole food form, reboot digestion, troubleshoot where you're broken down and fix it. Not hard. Well, and there's one, there's one other issue that you talk about in your book quite a bit that, you know, as I've tried to explain why so many people are led down the uh, gluten-free path and you've explained that people who eat gluten-free foods and don't eat wheat anymore have four times the mercury levels and mercury being the second highest toxic substance on the planet. That's sort of scary. And then they have less T3 killer cells. But also, you know, I have talked to people many times who have issues with wheat sensitivity who live here in the United States and they go to France and they find that they eat a croissant and they can't believe that they don't have this gut ache. And I believe that you've had the same experience. I've heard this many, many times directly from people who have the different experience. So this can't be explained because a croissant, and we're not saying that croissants are good for you, but you know, let's face it, we're all going to eat one now and then. Um, so it, it can't be that it's processed with, you know, the germ and the brand thrown away, which is all of the micronutrients and all of the fiber, essentially. And it can't be that it's been hybridized. We've already discussed the Kamut issue, which definitely calls into question that theory that the problem with people reacting to gluten is the fact that it's been hybridized to increase the gluten level. That's what that's what we were told for many years, right? But there's another issue. Tell, talk about the issue that may be the reason that is probably the reason why people can go to France and eat even processed wheat and not react like they do it with American processed wheat. And I think there's two major reasons. Number one, um, I'll give you the easy one first. People are on vacation and they are relaxed. And when you're relaxed, you increase what's called the parasympathetic nervous system versus when you're at home, you're stressed out and you have an activation of your sympathetic nervous system. The, the short term, the colloquial term for the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest nervous system. So when you actually sit down, relax, take time to eat your food, you activate the nervous system that can, in fact, digest. When you're stressed out on the run, you literally activate a nervous system that turns off the digestive system. So that's one. And maybe that's not, you know, a really convincing argument. But as a piece of the puzzle, let me tell you, it's very important when you sit down and like, most cultures are appalled about how Americans eat their food on the run, gobble here, gobble here, go, 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 go. It's a real thing and it's something you have to look at. But the, probably the more important thing is that the bread that they eat over there is made from scratch. It might be using whole, they might be using refined white flour, but it's made from scratch and they don't put any oil in it. They don't process it. They made it that day. You go, if you're having a croissant at a restaurant, in France, they made it that day, and, and by the end of that day, it's going to be hard as rock, and they're going to make a new set of croissants the next morning. Uh, and, and that's exactly why people can eat it. It's perfect proof that the omega-6 fatty acid put in stuff to make it last for weeks and weeks is the cause of the indigestion, and that's why people can eat it. One is they're eating it in a relaxed way. I think it makes a difference. And then, but more importantly, probably, is the, the non-processed version. Now, you can go into grocery stores in Europe and in France, which are popping up all over the place, sadly, and people are, are not going to the bake. Like, when I used to, I used to go to France a lot, 
and eat there and you go to the bakery for your bread, the cheese shop for your cheese, the meat place for your meat, the vegetable place for your vegetables. It was just sort of, you had to go to like five shops to get dinner. And um, and that's sort of changing. We're bigger, uh, I was there last summer and, and there are supermarkets with processed bread. But if you're in your hotel and you're in these little, little, little towns, you're still gonna go to the bakery because that's what you do when you're, on, when you're on vacation. You don't go into the supermarket on vacation. Uh, generally speaking, and you're going to eat non-processed food that was made from scratch, even with, you know, you know, really refined white flour, which is where the what a croissant is made out of. So, okay, but talk a little bit about glyphosate or Roundup and the difference in how much we spray versus other countries. Well, unfortunately, um, you know, one of the techniques that I write about in the book is this this desiccation of using Roundup at the end of the harvest to spray it on wheat to basically kill the wheat, and it and it somehow makes all the wheat berries become ripe at the same time, so it increases their yield significantly. It's not really being done so much in America. It was being done hugely in Europe and then they shut it down a few years back. So when people had this experience, they were probably having Roundup on the wheat. Not to say that that's good at all, but it's amazing how we can take, our digestive system can take a beating, little beatings. But yes, there is Roundup everywhere. There's Roundup on every, every basically conventional food, even on most organic foods because the rain now has glyphosate in it. Um, so we really can't get away from that. The glyphosate kills the microbes that make the enzyme to help you digest much of anything. It's really important that toxins in the environment kill the microbes to help make the enzymes to help us digest. And of course, the, the processed foods render us unable to digest much of anything. So you put those three together, you have the reasons why we're not digesting our foods. And, and uh, you go to Europe, um, you know, hopefully, you know, you know, I mean, the bread is generally just made from scratch. That's the, that's the bottom line. If we would just find bread that was wheat, salt, and water, and I've been to bakeries in France. I, we, we did a whole, we spent a lot of time there looking at, uh, I've got some uh, really old school, old fashioned uh, French uh, sourdough recipes in my book that are amazing. It's just about, you know, cooking whole foods and cooking food from scratch and not and taking it out of a package. It's, it's, that's step one. And then try to make it seasonal. Like I put a grocery list together every for every month, which including recipes, superfoods, and a grocery list for every month of the year for people to eat seasonal food for free. I put it on my website at lifespot.com. It's called the Free Season Diet Challenge. It's so important for people to get the bugs out of the soil, on their foods, into their gut, to change their microbiome from the spring to the summer to the fall. And if you don't, compromising your immunity and compromising your microbiome, and it's critically important we get reconnected to those rhythms of nature. All right. You've touched on some good things about how to rehabilitate your digestion. I've just found that everyone around me has gut issues. My children and I don't because of some specific things that we do, but I'd love for you to take us through because I know you're deep in Ayurvedic principles. Um, you've talked about pre, you know, getting uh, prebiotics and probiotics in your diet, which basically means eating plants, wheat being one of those. Tell us some actionable things to rehabilitate our digestive systems. Um, the first thing is I think you should really focus in on the gallbladder and the liver because that's the, the insidious congestive organ that that is causing us to not be able to digest you know, fried food, not that we should be able, but those are sort of like challenge foods. If you eat those and feel really bad, yeah, that's not good. So things that will, that are called cologogs will decongest your liver and your gallbladder are beets, apples, and celery. Like starting your morning with breakfast uh, with a beet, celery, and apple juice is a great way to start your day. Uh, fenugreek, for example, has been shown to make a fenugreek tea have been shown to contract the gallbladder by 75%. Turmeric, you can use it as a spice or in a capsule, um, has been shown to contract your gallbladder by 50%. Artichokes, powerful colon you cleanse and flush your liver and your gallbladder. Um, all of your leafy greens are really good for flushing your liver and your gallbladder. So when your liver and gallbladder get congested, then you don't have any bile to buffer the acid. So the acid sort of says, oh boy, I better not make any acid. Or you live with heartburn, and they give you an anti-acid to shut down your acid for you. Either way, you're eventually going to have no acid. That makes sense? It does. So, so we want to strengthen your digestive fire, but we want to do that 
only when we've made sure we've increased bioflow. Because if you go in there and just give somebody hydrochloric acid, which is a very common thing to do, and they don't have any bile to buffer that acid, the stomach's going to feel, the, the, the liver's going to be like, oh, wait a minute, who started turning on the acid? I turned it off years ago because we don't have enough bile to buffer that acid. And so what's going on? Where are those acid coming from? My goodness. So we have to think about the body's logic. If the body is holding on to acid, then it's doing that and giving you heartburn. It's doing it because there's no bile to buffer it. So let's increase the bile first and then gently and kindly help your body make its own acid instead of just overruling the intelligence of the body and say, here's some acid. So we do that with five spices, ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. Now those five spices are pretty amazing. Individually, they have great science to back them up in terms of digestion support. But as a whole, it's an ancient recipe that I've been using for years in my practice. Those five spices actually strengthen the ability for you to make your own stomach acid, make your own bile, make your own duodenal and pancreatic enzymes to get you to get on the herb better and get off. And you can spice them, use them as spices for your food, which is something we've thrown out the, you know, out the window and you don't cook with spices very much anymore. And they also, or you can get them in capsule form as well, but powerful support to turn on the upper digestion and then the bile flow. And then you wanna do things for the quality and integrity of your intestinal skin and, and maybe most importantly, the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is this unsung system that is linked to the whole grain brain effect. It's really a brain drain effect. Um, and we really do need to decongest our lymphatic system. So first step there is the intestinal skin. And uh, I love a, a tea we make of slippery elm, marshmallow root, and licorice root. And you take, uh, we, we have it in a chopped form. You take three tablespoons of the mixture, soak it overnight in two quarts of water, boil it down to a half a quart, strain it through a metal strainer. And you have this thick, viscous tea in a jar, put it in the fridge, take a tablespoon dose of that every couple of hours throughout the day. Um, and it coats your whole intestinal mucous membranes like the Pepto-Bismol commercial, coating it with this natural prebiotic slime that protects your whole intestinal tract. It's pretty cool stuff. And then we use foods like in Ayurvedic medicine, they use this uh, recipe called pituri, which is a which is split yellow mung beans and long grain white rice. Now that might white rice is bad, and how can you eat white rice? It's terrible. People would think, but the reality is, somebody years ago, thousands years ago, took the husk off the rice by hand, split the mung bean by hand, took the husk off, and cooked these unhusked, dehusked rice and beans with special spices like the ones I just mentioned for hours and hours to make it into this convalescent soup that they would give to people who are aged or failing or to the, the very first food that they give a baby whose digestive system is just beginning to start. We have cleanses we have in the book that we tell people how to go through and do a detox using chitri to heal your intestinal skin. And then for the lymph on the outside of your intestinal skin, anything that would make your skin turn color like a dye, like a blueberry or a blackberry or a strawberry or a raspberry or a pomegranate or a beet, anything that's sort of got that dye in it, definitely is a lymphatic mover. Those antioxidants and those food groups work through the lymphatic system according to some pretty interesting science. So that's what helps get our limb system moved for exercise as well as um, as well as staying hydrated is very, very important. You know, I love the idea of listening to our body and following the seasons and paying more attention to what our body wants. And that's what uh, Ayurveda helps us do. And so we're going to put a link in the show notes at greensmoothiegirl.com. We'll put a link to Dr. Duyard's book. He's actually the author of quite a few books. And we'll also see if we can get a recipe or two. He's talking about such wonderful things about combining ginger, cumin, coriander, cardamom, and cinnamon, I believe, um, to improve that throughput and increase bile production um, as part of your strategy to get your, to get your digestive health back. And so, Dr. Diard, tell me a story about how, because the way you are eating, if you're walking your talk, is so radically different than the average American. Tell me a story about your family and how these principles have um, helped you to be healthy, you know, as you see everybody your age and mine really sick around us, don't we? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You know, 
I was, you know, sort of like you, I wasn't, you know, the healthiest person in the world. When I was 27 years old, my first year of practice, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure. And I went to see, you know, some doctors and they wanted to give me medicines and I wasn't sort of into that. And I was meditating, doing yoga, doing good things, but I still had high blood pressure. And I went to see an Ayurvedic doctor and he looked at me and he said, uh, what do you eat for lunch? I said, well, I have a busy practice and I, and I have a breakfast. It's really good. And I have a, which I thought was really good. And, and I have a dinner, and but I'm usually running behind for lunch when I get something on the run. He goes, stop, have a nice warm cooked meal in the middle of the day, you'll never have high blood pressure again. I said, oh, come on, really give me some Ayurvedic pill, I need to get this fixed. I ended up doing it, watching my blood pressure get better, I did a study on it, saw the results, and that's what sort of was the first you know fascination I had about circadian rhythms and how they affect our health. When you eat, the science now shows it's conclusive. When you eat a breakfast and a lunch and a light dinner, significant health benefits. You lose weight, you have more energy, you have less heart disease, lower blood pressure, all the things that I found 30 years ago when I first started doing this. I was like, wow. So the science is catching up to the ancient wisdom. And that's what I write about my, my, on my website at lifespa.com is, is I take ancient principles of medicine and prove them with science. And it's amazing. I, I thought I had like one or two articles and I'd be out of business, but I, I, I keep finding more and more and more. It's like unlimited. There's so much science buried in the journals that prove ancient wisdom. And we know when you have something that's been around for a thousand years that works, and now you have science to prove it, don't you think we should at least look at that? I'm not, to say, I'm not saying it's gospel or it's the way everybody should do it, but it's a lot different than just science funded by whoever you know funded the study. And you never know really, is it really accurate or not? But when you have something that's been done for a thousand years and you have some science to prove it, that sort of, to me, is something, it's a good place to start. And that's what I write about on my website. And that's what I live and breathe. I'm constantly looking for ways to become a better seasonal eater. I don't think that we have to only eat seasonal food. We'd have to live in a bubble to do that. But I think we should think about eating more of the foods that are in season. Stop thinking about what we should not eat other than processed food. And think about what we should eat more of. And, and that's why I put these grocery lists together. You look at the grocery list for, for April and you circle the stuff you want on the list that you like and eat it. And give yourself permission to eat it because it's in season right now. Uh, as opposed to thinking I shouldn't, 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 shouldn't. Or I want some restricted diet that says eat high protein or high fat or high carb or whatever it is. And then, you know, we find ourselves binging on uh, what we didn't have in a, in, a, in a season or two later because nature gives us a high protein, high fat diet in the winter a low fat diet in the spring and a high, car high carbohydrate diet in the summer. So if you eat any of those, you eat high protein, high fat all the time, you're gonna crave the, the, the low fat, which is a cleansing season, and you, which is spring, you're gonna crave, and you're gonna crave the carbs and binge on them. And we've been down this road before. We, people, when we binge on carbs, we gain weight. And now we blame carbs on everything. Carbs are the scapegoat for everything, but they're really important in balance and in season. And that's what I think both of us are trying to say. Right, we are. And you and I were discussing um, 2016's book by Dr. Michael Greger, who's an MD. He's the nutritionfacts.org guy, but he wrote the book, How Not to Die. And I was telling you that there's 130 pages at the end of the book that are his references. So literally thousands of references. And he talks about how, you know, you've talked about how, you know, ancient hominids 3.4 million years ago were eating grains. They weren't, they weren't eating meat. People in Paleolithic times, the vast majority of them were eating probably more carbohydrates than Americans do. Um, different kinds of carbohydrates, of course. You've you've talked about you know what the real problems are with grains. You've talked about seasonal eating. You've talked about how kamut, an ancient grain, has twice as much protein in it as the hybridized grain does. Totally blowing up that theory. You've talked about so many interesting things. But Dr. Greger also talks about how you know people who have lived, you know, in the blue zones, uh, that's not Dr. Gregor, that's Dan Beaner, but it's, you know, shown to us that the people who live the longest on this planet eat lots of carbohydrates. And I like how you're talking about in season, we, we ebb and flow with what is available to us as people have for thousands of years. And when we start to think like that, we let go of this death grip we have on counting grams of proteins, fats, and carbs, which has never made sense to me. I never followed that even in my sick periods way back, you know, 25 years ago. But I, I love the more common sense approach we've gotten from you. I think my readers are going to 
find that their minds are blown on a lot of the sacred cows in the field of wellness and nutrition that they may have things that they thought they knew that they now have to rethink. And I want to say that I have never stopped eating grain. I'm just going to say it. I feel like I'm on Alcoholics Anonymous or something, but I've never stopped eating gluten. I have never purchased any of the $16 billion a year worth of gluten-free processed foods that people are buying. It never made any sense to me. You know, King Tut's tomb was full of wheat. It's called the staff of life in the Bible for good reasons. Now we've got from Dr. Duyard that you know, people were eating it 3.4 million years ago when they were barely, you know, standing up. Paleolithic man was eating grains. We need to rethink it. Actually, right before you and I talked, I ate a sprouted grain, like English muffin. And I, I always look for organic and I try to look for sprouted. I used to, I, I, used, I raised my kids making just like you, like you were talking about, it's part of your book, sourdough breads, instead of throwing some quick rise yeast in there, so that I could get yeah. my bread done in an hour like nobody has since the dawn of time. Um, you know, I mean, there are people eating cereal grains. I learned this from you, cereal grains, and they had mortar and pestle, you know, literally thousands of years ago before people were eating meat, before fire was <laughs> discovered. And I raised my kids on um, sourdough whole grain bread that I made. I've never had gut issues. I don't have immune issues. I never get sick in the winter. I have tons of energy and I eat plenty of gluten. And so I'm not a study. I'm not. um, That's just one person's experience. But my 16 year old son has been saying, because my oldest three kids are grown and gone. He's been saying to me lately, mom, remember that bread you used to make? And I would just pour some olive oil and a little balsamic and they would dip, they would dip the bread in that. And you're right. It took a few days and I don't want anyone to think, be daunted by that. It took a few days because I would make my own sourdough and that sourdough would sit out on the counter and it would keep reproducing itself. It's not that I actually had to, we have to work for three days. It's that that's how people since the history of ever have made bread and used grains. And so lots to learn from Dr. Duyard. Tell us where we can find more from you. We'll definitely put some some links to your site. Tell us where we can learn more about you. Yeah, um, my website is LifeSpa, L-I-F-E-S-P-A.com. So LifeSpa.com, and that's where you can get, uh, I put out three video newsletters a week, proving ancient wisdom with modern science. That's what I do and love to do. And, and uh, of course, Eat Wheat, you can get anywhere. It's on Amazon and uh and uh, that's pretty much it. But pretty much most of the stuff on my website is free. All the all the articles and the videos are free, um, and all the information about how to reboot your digestion is over almost a thousand articles and videos up there for free that you can help to reboot and help to learn more about how to reset and strengthen your digestion. I love it. Well, from discovering you on a beach in Mexico on vacation uh-huh. to this wonderful interview, thank you for your time so much, Dr. Duyard, and everybody go live your high vibration life. Mm-hmm.